Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the Global Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. This is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. How's your week going, Chuck? How are you doing? It's been a pretty good week, Claudine. Thanks. I mean, I've spent part of the last couple of weeks since our previous podcast listening to our producer, Sam Tornio, gradually lure me back into the office. And I guess lure the both of us back into the office with promises of all kinds of high-tech equipment for the next podcast. And all things being well, I will indeed be returning to the office and our recording studio shortly. I've also been spending the past couple of weeks with a group of fantastically energized colleagues preparing control risks for LGBT Pride Month. How about you, Claudine? What have you been up to? My week has been an interesting one so far because I got my very first swim of the year in. We have beautiful weather here and I managed to make it down to the coast, which was fabulous. And also doing a lot of fascinating work on horizon scanning and thinking about macro risk for our clients and how the world is evolving, what it's going to look like post-pandemic. That's right. I think the nature of our meetings with clients is evolving. But for anybody who's checking in while they listen to the podcast, the frequency of our meetings and the length of our meetings isn't changing at all. They're both pretty high. They are, aren't they, Chuck? I almost wish some of them sometimes could be as short as the meeting that took place of the OPEC Plus this week, which was... Bada bing. (laughs) (laughs) Was it less than 30 minutes? Is that a world record for an OPEC meeting? (laughs) You know what? I I, I don't know. We might have to consult the Guinness Book of Records to check that. It certainly is shorter than most of the meetings we have on a a day-to-day basis, isn't it? It's hardly even enough to say hello. Claudine, a meeting that short probably leaves an awful lot unsaid. From the reporting that we've seen, it was largely uneventful, but that was not unexpected. So at the moment, OPEC and its allied producer countries are stepping up their production after, of course, an extraordinary year with the oil industry being absolutely battered by by COVID-19. And the meeting this week was simply an opportunity to confirm that they would continue that strategy of stepping up production. But there are an awful lot of challenges facing OPEC, which were unaddressed. We are sort of at the brink of ending the COVID-related anxieties in the energy sector. There was too much oil produced, but very suppressed demand. Now, this meeting really highlights that OPEC plus members have very rosy expectations about the outlook. They believe that the demand is coming back and that recovery is not only on our doorstep, but recovery is going to quickly drive back the demand to the pre-COVID levels. That's Oksana Antonika, director in our political risk consultancy. Just in the last couple of days, the Brent crude benchmark has exceeded $70 a barrel back to sort of pre-pandemic-ish kind of levels. That's obviously a significant windfall for OPEC members and kind of rewards them for what has been mostly a kind of cohesive response to the pandemic crisis. And that's Patrick Osgood, a senior analyst in our geopolitical risk team based in Dubai. OPEC was once one of the most famous acronyms in the world. And if your memory stretches back all the way to the 1970s, 
Everyone knew what OPEC was. It was demonized at times and has been a resonant actor on the global stage ever since its creation, really. Does OPEC matter anymore? Does OPEC plus matter anymore? I think the answer that's come out of the pandemic, Chuck, is yes, absolutely. What we've seen in the course of the pandemic is just a, a huge disordering of the oil market. And OPEC, after an initial period of chaos, really, with this conflict between Saudi Arabia and, and Russia playing out in the oil market for several weeks, we saw the value that OPEC has. You know, That oil had to be taken off the market in a cohesive way. There had to be a sense of shared sacrifice. There had to be diplomatic engagement to kind of try to put to bed some of the perennial issues that have plagued OPEC in years past, and number one being compliance, particularly by weaker producers. And that has largely been successful. I think we've also seen the kind of Saudi-Russia relationship, despite some tensions around preferred oil pricing levels, different perceptions of the market, different issues that they have with respect to the composition of their own oil sectors, that they've been able to see the big picture here. And we're kind of, we've seen that kind of reflected. And I think most, most immediately what we've seen from OPEC's perspective is an ability to have a very short meeting recently because they kind of agreed for three months to essentially stick about 2 million barrels a day of oil back on the market. They've stuck with that. It's provided the market with some certainty and some positive signals about you know, what OPEC is thinking. To an extent, we've kind of got a bit past this month-by-month -month intensive jostling between these different OPEC players, and that's just allowed them to put this extra supply onto the market. The oil price is where it is because OPEC still has over 6 million barrels a day of capacity shut in. So they really hold all the cards here in terms of the state of the market. We haven't seen US shale, for example, rebound in the way that it has, say, in the kind of post-2014 environment. OPEC's in the driving seat again, at least until we see full normalcy and you know a few years, I guess, of, of returning demand, which will change the dynamics again. OPEC is back for the time being. But you're sitting in Dubai, and that may give you a slightly different perspective on the primacy of the oil industry. I'm sitting in London, where the UK government has pledged not to sell another petrol-fueled car starting in 2030. And Oksana, I know that you're following the energy transition. Do moves like this and, and, and slightly broader global shifts in where energy is going to come from in the future, does this make anybody at OPEC nervous at all? Yes, Chuck, that's a very good question. In fact, you know, another important development from this week, apart from OPEC plus ministerial meeting, was the publication of the International Energy Agency report, which has really caused a lot of controversy and, in fact, a lot of pushback from OPEC. And this report basically said very plainly that if we want to reach the Paris you know, goals of keeping the global warming below one and a half centigrade, then we should be stopping investing in any new oil production projects. And in fact, you know, we should be thinking about reducing oil consumption by 75% by 2050. So it is, of course, a very substantial reduction that International Energy Agency is proposing. And OPEC said that, you know, of course, you know, this, this kind of accelerated schedule is going to lead to price volatility. But when we look behind that reaction, what it really means is that OPEC thinks that if the schedule for energy transition is to be accelerated, then we are likely to return much faster to the situation of the new market share competition and 
potentially oil price war, because those countries that are members of OPEC, most importantly, of course, Saudi Arabia and other producers that are able to produce oil at a relatively low price, and of course, countries like Russia, which is still producing oil at a relatively high price, will be competing for very rapidly shrinking global oil market. And therefore, you know, they are not going to be partners in that. So the, the energy transition is having an important Im- impact. But in the short term, if we're talking about 2020s and 2030s, this is when OPEC will continue to be a very important player, partly because, as I mentioned before, OPEC countries in particular are able to produce oil relatively cheap and are able to reduce and expand their production quite quickly. So they are a major swing power in whatever you know, oil demand is going to do over the next 20 years. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think where it gets dicey for these OPEC states, however, is they can get oil out of the ground and stick it on a ship for $6 a barrel. But they all have budgets that require oil price at 70 bucks or, or thereabouts. And they have rapidly expanding populations and they have their own very, very expensive plans for how they're going to manage the energy transition. The challenge for OPEC states and something that I think we're looking at pretty, pretty closely now as a lot of these states start to announce their diversification plans is, you know, how are they going to thread that kind of needle is one thing, I think, as Oksana says, to to think of these guys as like the last producers standing in a kind of 20 to 30 year scenario of perhaps the end of the the mass hydrocarbons era, that's not necessarily of great comfort to them if market pricing doesn't also support them to do what they want to do. And here we come in also to policy issues around carbon taxation, which are going to you know impact higher carbon producing states. These things will start to affect different OPEC producers in different ways. So there's several dynamics here going forward. Which are the producers that you would highlight as being the ones with the most sophistication or, or which have progressed the diversification plans the most? It is a very mixed picture. I would say Saudi and the UAE are kind of in pole position right now. Both of them are exploring hydrogen. Saudi actually has a, a large green hydrogen plant kind of underway. Oman is a non-OPEC member, but sort of kind of effectively is. And they've just announced a hydrogen plant that would be five times the size of Saudi's. So we're starting to see some of this diversification stuff come in and a realization that by playing up to this kind of thing, they're not necessarily going to have to entirely rely on domestic capital for these projects, which is very important. And then unfortunately, you have sort of laggard states that, in fact, need this economic diversification, need this energy transition much more, perhaps even than the, the richer ones that have ample domestic reserves. And again, I would sort of go back to Iraq on this, Nigeria, for example. And they are not very well positioned at all to capture this stuff. If I would be sort of worried about states that are very, very ill positioned to manage the kind of the next 20 years that we're talking about, particularly if we get serious about the kind of IEA type divestment scenarios, then I would sort of worry about those quite significantly. When we also look at the non-OPEC, you know, producers, you know, most importantly, of course, Russia, Kazakhstan and, and other countries that are not members of OPEC, but still producing a lot of, you know, fossil fuels, their strategy for diversification until recently was that they diversify from oil by increasing production of natural gas. In, in fact, most importantly, of course, you know, liquid, liquefied natural gas, LNG. But, you know, the kind of trends that we're seeing now in, in, in the world, in Europe in particular, is that LNG and natural gas is also not seen any longer 
as a green enough, you know, fuel, particularly for generating, you know, electricity. And therefore, they need to be rapidly thinking about accelerating proper green energy transition, for example, green hydrogen or solar or wind projects. And this is where they are very, very slow. And in fact, if we look at the Russian economy over the last several years, its dependency on oil and gas has increased, not decreased, you know, and that is because in foreign direct investment in non-oil and gas sectors have been, you know, very low. So we have a, a prospect potentially of several major oil producers almost falling off the cliff by 2050 because there is no chance for them to effectively and sustainably diversify their economies. We'll continue our conversation with Oksana and Patrick in a moment. But if you enjoy the Global Insight and haven't visited controlrisks.com, you are missing out. Every week we're adding new insights to help companies and investors better understand what's going on in the world. Like our Q1 Core Security Incident Report for 2021, which gives you a global overview of the security situation so far this year. There is a video briefing to go along with the report, which looks ahead at security outlook for Q2. That and more at controlrisks.com. Now, back to our conversation about the outlook for OPEC. Guys, we're throwing around a lot of dates that are fairly distant into the future. And in the Global Insight piece that you've produced for our website, you've got three scenarios. And I wonder if you could, in brief, describe those three scenarios. One of them is most likely, one of them is sort of in the middle, and one of them is an outlier. Just let us know what your vision of the future is and what readers are going to find in the article on the website. Under the first scenario, OPEC Plus continues to cooperatively manage oil production and gradually relax the output constraints. Under the second scenario, OPEC Plus agrees to accelerate the relaxation of the output constraints. And as a result of that already, by the end of this year, we are really returning back to the almost you know, pre-COVID production. And under the outlier scenario, the OPEC Plus members do not manage to agree on the way forward after July. And as a result, the whole agreement collapses and we are back in the price war that we've seen you know, pre-current agreement where Saudi Arabia and Russia are trying to defend their market shares unilaterally. Each scenario kind of comes with a sort of broad estimate of where we might be in terms of price as well and, and describes the kind of key factors that would play into that scenario taking place. So I think for our most likely one, one of the issues that we continue to look at is continued kind of outbreaks of a kind that we've you know seen recently in India having an impact on, on demand. That's actually slightly fading away. We're seeing sort of a little bit less of the impact of shutdowns and of disruptions from, from the pandemic really affecting the oil supply and demand balance and affecting the, the kind of levels of global stocks of oil that, that sort of OPEC has as a key metric moving more to our credible alternative, which is a slightly kind of higher oil price environment where, you know, demand proves very, very robust. It's enough, as Oksana says, for everybody to start tapering production cuts further. And then our sort of outlier is is really sort of the downside one, where both demand comes under stress again from renewed outbreaks and other demand factors, but also it relates quite a bit to a kind of wild card on the supply side, which is Iran. As a long-standing analyst at Control Risks, I can tell you that it is extraordinary how many times our outlier scenarios come to pass. So I'll be watching what happens with oil prices with great interest and checking back in with you two, Oksana and Pat, to see how you're still feeling about them as the months progress. Tell us a bit about how you think 
the different scenarios will impact on the business community. What should they be looking out for in terms of impact? I think there's an initial kind of macro one, and this is this is kind of being discussed more and more, seen it kind of surface in the last several weeks, is oil's contribution to inflation and just a sort of the generalized pricing environment and potentially the kind of interventions that that might spur in the monetary environment. So right now, the Federal Reserve, for example, is very dovish on this. But oil is a key driver of kind of core inflation. It's the alpha commodity of the global economy. And if it kind of gets, you know, well above 70, if we see this kind of very benign from an oil producer side perspective come up, core inflation is potentially an issue that will start to, you know, affect all businesses, both in terms of kind of demand, particularly into kind of softer markets and so on. But, it can, you know, it can affect monetary prices and everything. So the extent to which OPEC is going to be sensitive to this and kind of seek to tamp down on the kind of speculative talk of $100 a barrel of oil again, I think that's going to be fairly significant, number one. Yes, I think from my perspective, if I look a little bit more on the kind of what does it mean for investors around the world? I mean, the first one, of course, is that, you know, we are really talking about implications of all of those scenarios for the financial situation in many of the oil producing states. And if the oil price, you know, goes back down as a result of the more active competition between the oil producers, you know, many countries that are already in a very stressful situation as a result of the pandemic are going to find their fiscal constraints, you know, really, really high and a lot of political instability and social instability. And we've done several analyses before on this most vulnerable states. And we're seeing that across the board, countries like Brazil, you know, countries like Mexico, countries like Iraq, you know, many other countries that are really vulnerable to new shocks that could come as a result of the collapse in oil price agreements. Another important implication, of course, is that how is the relationship geopolitically between, you know, Russia and Saudi Arabia are going to evolve if the agreement around OPEC plus is going to collapse? Because, of course, that will have a massive implications for the geopolitics and security in the Middle East. Are Russia's relationship with Iran are going to once again become important or Russia continues to stick with Saudi Arabia and United States to perhaps, you know, taking a bit more moderate approach towards its relationship with Iran, including in the military field as well. So that will have a big implications. And the final point here, of course, is, you know, what are we really talking about from the point of view of investors and in renewables? If OPEC Plus will be able to control the market and keep the prices high, the incentives for shifting to, uh, you know, investing in renewables in many parts of the world where oil is still the king is going to be less. So, you know, investments in traditional oil projects is going to continue, not least in Russia, but also in the Middle East. Patrick, you mentioned this in one of your previous remarks, and Oksana, you've also touched on Iran. Before we move to a final question, can you just explain to us why Iran is such a wild card in all of these calculations and what we need to watch? So as we know, the nuclear talks are going on between the US and Iran. And the key aspect of that is at some point, assuming things go well, the US is going to give some sanctions relief to Iran to allow it to, without constraints, export oil and other hydrocarbons. The issue here is Iran has an enormous amount of oil and other hydrocarbons in storage. There's a bunch of ships out there on the sea. There's a bunch of bonded storage. We're talking potentially up to 110 million barrels. The wild card is that it's not clear if there's a deal, the extent to which Iran will care about the concerns of the rest of the world and oil price stability when it tries to place all of those barrels back on the market. They could do it in a very chaotic way because they want to regain market share. 
or they could cooperate with OPEC and just sort of bring things in gradually over a longer period of time. We just don't know yet. You know, that therefore just potentially has a very short run, sharp impact on price. Before we go, could the two of you give us some things to look out for? What might happen out there that's going to cause either or both of you to grab your laptops and move us from one scenario to another? And what are the signposts? Well, I think from my point of view, of course, COVID dynamics are really very important, you know, because they will, at the end of the day, determine to what extent the demand recovers at the same level as many of these OPEC plus members, you know, at the moment assume that there will be just this, you know, quick and predictable demand environment. If we are going to see further, you know, new variants coming in and further kind of delay in vaccination, this is going to have an impact on global economy and perhaps, you know, introduce more strain in the OPEC plus negotiations. And the second issue is Iran, which, you know, Pat has covered very well. But just to give you a perspective that Iran can potentially bring up to 2 million barrels per day to the market, which is almost the same amount that Russia at the moment, you know, has decreased its production. So it's it's a really massive injection. Of course, it's not going to happen overnight, but it can happen quite quickly as well, of course, as Libya and others returning back to the market. It's the oil price, really. If we see a lot of speculative hot money pouring back into the long side of the oil price, then what goes up will come down through kind of OPEC intervention and so on. And we'll see more, we'll definitely see more volatility there and, and more geopolitical turbulence that will come out of that. And then perhaps the last one is well, something that we haven't talked about a lot is US shale. It's been dormant so far. It hasn't kicked up. Is there a price level? Is there a length of the, the price at its current level? where investors start to take a fresh look at US jail. Thank you so much, Oksana and Pat. Great discussion about OPEC. Let's revisit it again soon. Thank you very much, Claudine and Chuck. It was you know, great to join you. And I'm, I'm sure this is a topic that we will be revisiting again very soon. Thanks, Claudine. Thanks, Chuck. It was a, it was a pleasure, as always. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay updated with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how Control Risks helps build secure, compliant, and resilient businesses by visiting controlrisks.com. The Global Insight is produced by Sam Tornio and Vicky Bufton. Many thanks to them. And for me, goodbye for now. And goodbye from me.